All right. Well, guys, excited to jump into our second week here of Wrecked, looking at the book of Job. No, I'm not joking. We are walking through the book of Job. Uh, if you have a phone or an iPad that you would like to go on to church.info and look at our message notes and make some notes that you can then email to yourself, you're welcome to do that right now. Now, I'm not going to lie. The last few weeks I've said, we'll use it, but it's a tool. If you start fading off and start going through your Google News or whatever while I'm preaching, I will find out about it and I will put it. Someone literally texted me an article during last week's message. <laughs> It technically, it was supposed to help me because I was trying to remember the name of the uh, symbiose, symbiotic relationship of the fish and the shark, the remoras. Anyway, so I appreciate your help. However, I made it fairly straightforward, what I was asking of you. Uh, yeah, so if you want to go to cachurch.info, you can hit sermons, hit the town center, and you'll find the rec title uh, slide there. Last week... We walked through kind of an introduction, what I called kind of a setting the table uh, for, for how we are to approach the book of Job and an understanding of the culture and the understanding of the gods uh, and uh, the heavenly realms that would have been understood at the time of Job. Because a lot of what we're going to read about and study over the next uh, two months, a lot of the mindset that Job's friends bring to the table are misguided and are a result of the kind of culture that they were living in and the understanding they had of the gods of the day. And we need to understand that as we read through. The gods of Job's day as, as the people understood it, were, were needy. They, they needed humanity. Humanity was an afterthought to provide food and, and a temple and, and love for the gods in a way. There was this understanding that if I lived, uh, if I did all the rituals right, I would be blessed. If I failed to do all the rituals, then bad things were going to happen to me. And, and then this, the book of Job introduces a God who is in charge of everything, rather than these different gods like Marduk or the gods of Egypt, that the, the people around in Job's day, they wouldn't even know who to pray to for what. And the, the gods would often change their minds. So even if it was the right God before, he or she might not be the right God now. And then the book of Job introduces a God who's sovereign over everything, created everything, sustains everything that we can bring our questions to. This God... Yahweh has made it clear what his character is like and what he desires from those who worship him. And we're introduced at the beginning of, of chapter one to this, this amazing man. The, the author of the book of Job calls Job an amazing man, right? He, he's righteous. He has complete integrity, it says in verse one. He feared God, it says in verse one. He had reverence for God. He stayed away from evil. He'd offer sacrifices regularly, it says in verse five. And he was blessed. He was blessed with a, a big, healthy family in verse 2. Blessed with wealth, it says in verse 3. And in the ancient Near East, this makes total sense. Of course this guy was blessed. He did all the right rituals. So therefore, as they saw their relationship with the gods, he should get blessing in his life. That's the way it works. That is the world, that is the mindset that Job is being inter introduced to. If you... Take a look at the app or open your Bible, old school, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Or if it'll also be on the screen behind me, I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. And I'm going to read verses 6 through to verse 12. Oh, I've gone way past all that. Sorry. Are we having a 
an issue up there with that? All right. Well, if we can get to the text, it'll be up there behind you, starting at verse 6. The word of God to us this morning. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. God, we want to invite you into our gathering this morning in order to open our hearts and minds to what you would want to teach us through not just this text, but through this entire book as we travel through it over the next couple months. A book that I think has been used incorrectly at times, uh, a book that we can approach from a certain cultural uh, standpoint. And so it's my prayer that you would give us clarity and give us understanding of who you are through this book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think we're having issues up there with, with uh, that'll be a tech problem, but fortunately, we have a Bible in our hands, or church.info that has everything I'm going to be talking about anyway. Guys, uh, November 28th, 2010, there was a battle between the Buffalo Bills and the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, an ongoing rivalry. And Stevie Johnson, who was a wide receiver for, for um, the Buffalo Bills, who had had a stellar season, had been making so many catches, running so many yards. In this game, moving closer to overtime, fumbled the ball. And in that game, the Pittsburgh Steelers went on to win the game. Stevie Johnson proclaimed himself to be a, a Christian. And we're, I guess we're not going to have it up there. I believe it is on, on the app, but I'll read it to you. He sent out this tweet after the game. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? Don't worry about the grammar. You expect me to learn from this? Question mark, question mark, question mark. How? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I'll never forget this. Exclamation point. Ever. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Pretty intense. When you're tweeting God, <laughs> you got you to choose your words carefully. And we think, who, who has, has the audacity to make a statement like that? Well, I introduce you to Psalm 73, verses 13 to 14. All right. I, 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 this will not be the person. This will be the technology. I guarantee it. So in Psalm 73, 13 and 14, he says, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. So let me ask all of us this morning, 
Why did you decide to worship God? What are you in it for? I just thought of something. <laughs> Let's push it further. Why are you here this morning? Is it just because it's on the calendar? Is it because um, as many who, who come back to church when they start having kids, is it just to make sure that your kids get a good education and their structure and a moral understanding of how we ought to live? Why are you here? And, and think of why you decided to worship God, why you decided to be a Christ follower. Did, did you get what you hoped for? This morning, we're going to dive into the questions of what motivates us to righteousness, what motivates us to worship, the, the, the actuality of why we are here. Why, are, why do we claim to be a Christ follower? And to do so, we, we have to look at possibly the, the, one of the most difficult books to look at, but also the, one of the most difficult texts of the most difficult book to look at. This is a strange interaction in the heavenly council between Satan and and God. Now, I just need to clarify a few things here that will maybe help set us up to read this well. The first is this idea of the, the heavenly council. We find this, this several times in the Old Testament and several times in, in the writings of that, that time of this, this idea of God's throne room as kind of this council of the angels and heavenly beings that come in and converse with God Almighty. In Psalm 103, verses 20 to 21, we read this, praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. There's this idea that the angels are coming to God, getting their orders and kind of moving out from there. In Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, a text many of us are familiar with. It was, in the, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and attending him, approaching him in his council were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Throughout the Old Testament, we don't, it's not only angels surrounding to worship God, it's also to carry out his will. It's a common theme. And then into this heavenly council comes Satan. More accurately in the Hebrew, the Satan. It's not a personal name. So we, we kind of have to get that bit straight as we read through. Because many of us, when we read Satan, we see a capital S. There would be no capital in, in the, the Hebrew it simply says, thus Satan. It's more talking about a role, a function, than it is about a person. So we're, we're gonna be, we have to be careful here because our immediate thought is, oh, this is the devil. This is the guy who, who tempted Jesus. In that would, There'd be no concept of that for the people reading Job. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay? What, what, the, what the Satan actually means is the accuser or the adversary, the one who's coming up against it, there's nowhere in all of Job where it actually mentions or points to the fact that the devil might even be, this, that the Satan might be evil. He's just posing a question to Yahweh. So it's more of a, this lawyer kind of trying, and we see it actually used to mean lawyer in Hebrew as well. So rather than think of this, when we think of everyone cowering as Satan comes in talking like this, we might think more like a guy like this. Your Honor, 
If I may, I don't know if any of you know what movie that's from. Does anyone know? Cousin Vinny. Well done. Well done. He had some problems. He started having a real problem talking. But we, we may think more along the lines of, I have a question. As, as, your God, as your heavenly counsel, I have a question for you. See, and and we, we, we can find proof for this idea that, that it's not necessarily the devil as we think of him uh, throughout the Old Testament. There, there are those who opposed King Solomon, and they are called Satans in 1 Kings 11. They weren't actual, there was nothing demonic about them. They were just the ones that Solomon was battling with. King David is called a Satan in 1 Samuel 29, 4. Psalm 109 uses the word Satan to refer to a lawyer. Now, some of you, depending on your experience, you might not have a problem with that. Now, here's, here's the big one. God's angel in Numbers 22, 22, if you've heard the story of Balaam, who stands in the way of the donkey, is referred to as a Satan. An angel of God. So we have to be very careful when we, when we read that. We don't immediately bring in all this other baggage that we've been told necessarily, okay? We have possibly even maybe a regular angelic being who's taken on this role just to pose a question to Yahweh. And the basic point of this, this angelic uh, accuser adversary, the, the question he's making is this. Yet Job is righteous, but it's, it's just because you give, him, you give him stuff. You've made his life pretty good. Take all that away and you'll find that his righteousness is probably going to fade. How, how do you actually know he's righteous? How do you actually know he's right? Of course he worships you. You've made it easy. So, so this is Satan's accusation. The Satan's accusation is this. If you, God, run the world in a way that blesses those who worship you, how will you ever know the authenticity of their worship? Think about that question. So who's on trial in Job? God is, and the way God's running the world. Uh. If you, God, run the world in a way that blesses those who worship you, how will you ever know the authenticity of their worship? See how this changes the concept of, of, of Job, Job's day on, on how the gods work? Maybe our concept of, of who God is and why we ought to worship him and why do we worship him? Because the fact is this, is in the first point I want us to think on today, is uncertainty is an opportunity to live out deep faith. Uncertainty is an opportunity to live out deep faith. It's an opportunity to show our faith for what it truly is, not, not to God, to, to us. <laughs> how, deep, how deep does my faith reach? The adversary is saying, let's dig a little deeper, God. Let's, let's see how deep the roots of this faith go. Now, when I say Joshua tree, my generation thinks this. Okay? But there is an actual tree called a Joshua tree that you would find in the Mojave Desert, where everyone raided Area 51 the other day. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Did you hear that there was a Canadian who was, who was arrested? This is a great story. Public urination. Thank you so much for representing our country so well down there. The Joshua tree, which thrives in the desert. And some of them can live up to 1,000 years the Joshua tree. What's interesting about the Joshua tree is that in the middle of the desert, it has two levels of root systems. It has a level of roots that just stays near the top and goes wide. So right underneath the surface, it spreads out. So the water that falls a day like today, great day. 
All this water immediately grabbed and used. That's the higher level root system. The other level root system that the Joshua tree has goes straight down. 30 or 40 feet straight down to find water that cannot be found anywhere else. It finds its way into rocks and, and through rocks where water might be hiding out deep, deep below the surface. So on a bad day, on a bad month, on a bad half a year where the rain is not falling, the deep, deep, deep roots of the Joshua tree are using all the resources that it has because it's reached so deep down. When it appears there's nothing to offer, no life to be offered, no health in the tree's immediate experience, it draws strength and health from far below the surface because its roots have been exploring and finding health somewhere deep down. Joni Erickson Tata, who, who many of you might, might know who she is, if you're, if you're my age, you, you, you might know who she is. She became a quadriplegic at the age of 18 when she was diving into a pool and misjudged how shallow it was. So if there's someone who knows something about uncertainty, Someone who knows about life not necessarily turning out the way that you had hoped. She writes this in her book, Diamonds in the Dust. She says, the branches of growing trees not only reach higher, but their roots grow deeper. It's impossible for a strong tree to have branches without deep roots. It would become top heavy and topple over in the wind. The same is true with Christians. It's impossible for us to grow in the Lord without entwining our roots around his word and deepening our life in his commands. Why is that? Because if our lives are not entwined around who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, we'll create a version of God that possibly like the one that Job's friends have created, that we feel like he's let us down because we didn't get what we thought we earned. Or worse, maybe, is that we will, we will wrestle over trying to figure out how to appease him rather than lean on him. How many of us spend our lives trying to appease God rather than lean on him? See, the story of Job does not teach us how to think about suffering. I know that's what we're told. It doesn't teach us how to think about suffering, but how we should think about God when we are suffering. As we read last week, Job's roots, they go deeper than just the surface. He continues to live a righteous life. Even after this is kind of thrown at him and everything is, is taken from him, we see in Job 2 that this council, this heavenly council gathers again and Job's righteousness is still intact. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. It says, one day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, thus Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. So nothing's changed. He fears God and stays away from evil, and he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. You guys need to realize, Job never knows any of this. Never in Job's life does he, he's never told this at the end, never finds out why it's all happened. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. The accuser there is saying, I'm sure Job would gladly trade the life of his, lives of his family as long as he can keep his own. It's pretty, pretty low. Next. Oh, what did you say? Sorry. But reach out and take away his health and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. 
So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. Look at Job. So his wife then comes to him and says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? It's not, it's, she's saying it's not working. Well, the way we look at it, it's not working. Curse God and die. And Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Look at Job's clarifying words there. This, this, this type of righteousness that he has, this, it was challenged to the gods of Job's day and perhaps maybe the idea that you and I have towards God. But Job, isn't it just a calculation? Haven't we figured out how it all works? If we get the rituals right, shouldn't we be able to appease and manipulate God into giving us what we want? Shouldn't we be able, if we get all the rituals right, shouldn't he keep us from fumbling the ball? Shouldn't he give us the person of our dreams? Shouldn't he give me the job I want? And Job says, should we only accept good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? And in all of this, it says, Job did not sin. In fact, what we see is Job settling even more into his conviction that he's not going to step away from God. He leans even more into it. That's the second thing that Job teaches us, that uncertainty is an opportunity to offer deeper worship. We don't think of it that. We think of it as an out. But often, uncertainty is an opportunity to offer deep worship. Job is invited by his wife to give up on God. Stop living your life of integrity. This, this is what we called last year the retribution principle. You do the right thing, you get blessed. You do the wrong thing, you get cursed. She says, it doesn't seem to be working here. So stop living your life of integrity. Give up on it. See, the, the deal we have with God where, where he should give us what we want if we are faithful, and apparently it, it's not working, so let's bail. Job says, listen, I'm not sure the God you think we worship. I'm not sure the concept of the God you think we worship. And believe me, I have questions for him too, which are always allowed, by the way. But God is not more worthy of worship on the days we make the catches than he is on the days that we fumble the ball. He's not less worthy on those days. One of the stories that kind of falls in the same category of Job is the story of Abraham. Abraham called by God to be the father of the Hebrew nation. He is, he's called out by God in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. God says to Abraham, if, he says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Notice in all of God's conversation with Abraham, he never says, Abraham, I've had my eye on you and I like what I see. So because of that, I'm going to bless you. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, Abraham, I'll do this if you. God just does it on his watch and for his own purposes. And Abraham comes to find that all of these promises that God has made are going to be fulfilled through his son, Isaac. It will be through his son, Isaac. And like the story of Job, with unknown motivation, God then asked Abraham to give up his son. 
very much like Job, not knowing the reasons. He says, I want you to take your son. I want you to take him up Mount Moriah. I want you to bind him. And I want you to offer him to me. It's a horrible story. It's a horrible story. I don't care what you think Abraham knew. I don't care what ended up happening after. I do. We'll get to that in a moment. But for Abraham, it's just a horrible story. Take him up Mount Moriah. I have a, a shot there of Isaac. I love Gustav's great, fantastic art on this. Isaac carrying his own wood up the mountain of Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. We can theologize all we want. We can talk about Abraham all we want, but the fact is that is his son that he's being asked to sacrifice. His son that as far as Abraham knew was, was going to bring about all the promises God had made him in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 22, he tells him to take him up. And what Abraham is saying there, what, what Abraham is saying there is you are worth more to me than all the blessings you can give me. He's willing to put every blessing God has given him on the altar. But listen, we look at that story and we think, what a horrible thing. And we're right. It's a horrible thing. But part of what we miss here is that the very fact of sacrificing one's child to a God was not new in Abraham's day. It was not new in Job's day. During the time of Abraham, there were people who were sacrificing their children to the gods. So Abraham might have not been surprised by the ask. But what we see here is a God who is diametrically different than the gods worshipped by Abraham and Job until now, a God who provides sacrifice on our behalf. It seemed normal to do that to Abraham. It would have been painful, but it would have seemed normal. But here we have a God in the moment who steps in on his behalf and says, Abraham, use this ram instead as a sacrifice. We worship a God who provides sacrifice on our behalf. You see, almost two millennia after this story, we know of another son who carried the wood of his sacrifice on his back, who many historians and scholars believe walked up the same mountain, Mount Moriah. And like Isaac, who was willingly laying himself on the altar, the son of the living God, Jesus Christ, willingly submitted himself to death on a cross. Imagine the heart of Abraham in that moment. Job is a warning. Job is a warning to, to check the depth of our faith before uncertainty comes. Before uncertainty comes. Abraham must have had his heart in a very special place. To be given that ask and to seemingly walk through it. Who are we when everything is in danger of being stripped away. When everything is in danger of being taken from us, how deep will our trust run? See, try, trying to grow deep roots in the middle of a drought is very difficult. You can't just quickly shoot your roots down. We need to figure out where our roots are now and how deep do our roots Run. That's why Job is, a, is like, a, I mentioned last week, like a thought experiment for us to, to mull through in our minds to go, where would I be and how deep would my trust run in a moment like this? When what we value and love is taken, 
How deep will our faith go? It can deepen our faith. It can deepen our worship. But there's real clarification that comes with trial. There's real clarification. Do we gather here this morning for, for the hope of blessing out of, do we, do we hope that God will bless us somehow this week because we did our hour? Do, do we think we're going to stay clear of curses because we sang our worship? Or are we here for the joy of knowing him? For the joy of leaning on him? If not, we will find ourselves bargaining with God, trying to make deals. I, I saved myself for marriage. You didn't give me what I wanted. I've, I, I've dealt with integrity in my business, and I'm struggling to get by financially. I've, I've worshipped you, and, and you let me drop the ball in the big game. I served you faithfully in ministry, and my church didn't grow. Pastors can play it too. What is that? It's manipulation. Bargaining with the Almighty? Really? As if God needs to hold up some bargain with you and I. Some level of blessing. As if he hasn't already offered every blessing through Christ. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. In Colossians 2.10, think Paul is writing these from prisons after being beat, after being shunned. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Ephesians 1.3, all praise to God. Can, can you imagine yourself having run out of towns, being had rocks thrown at you? being cursed, imprisoned, whipped and beaten to write all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. You know what's so great about blessings in the heavenly realms? It's that nothing can take them. They, they can't be taken. How deep the roots of those who find their sufficiency in Christ, with Christ and Christ alone, not in success, not relationally or, or financially, not in recognition in their work, acceptance, being understood, being justified. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing as we, as we conclude this morning. God deserves our praise. God deserved our worship even before the cross. He deserved our worship even before. He was self-sufficient, creator, sustainer, just, worthy of all honor and praise before he sent Christ to die for the sins of the world. That doesn't make the cross less. It makes it more. God gained no more worth because of the cross, but you and I sure did. He proclaims that in spite of being all-sufficient, self-sufficient, all-sustaining, powerful, just, in need of nothing. He pursued us, loved us, offered us forgiveness, grace, and mercy, not out of obligation or bargain, but out of love. God was worthy of our praise before the cross, but oh, how the cross compels us to praise him all the more. We, took a, we worship a God who, 
who took on hopelessness and rejection and death so that when we face the same things, we look to the one who conquered them all and unites us to himself and unites us to his victory over all things. All praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Oh, may our roots run deep. And may, may they wind and entwine around the truths of who we are in Christ. What he's provided for us and may, may we worship and may, may our faith find hope and strength in the desert and in the storm and in the shadow and in times of uncertainty. Let's pray. God, it is not an enjoyable question. <laughs> it's not an easy question. To think through, to contemplate through, to meditate on the depth of our trust and the depth of our faith. And so, really, this is a work that needs to be done by your spirit, God. God, I know for myself, I, I don't want the storm to hit. I don't want the drought to hit and my faith have only been relying on, on, a, on a deep root, on a, on a shallow root system that, that goes out wide, but is not deep. God, I pray for myself. I pray for this church that our roots would run deep and entwine your word and your promises of who we are. I thank you so much that our faith is not a blind faith, that we can look back to the historical fact of the life, death, and resurrection of you, Jesus. And, and it changes the trajectory of history. And so that we can look forward with hope. Our, our, our roots can run deep because of your life, death, and resurrection. Whom do we have in heaven but you? May our joy... May our trust, may our lives rest in nothing but being united with you, Jesus, because everything else will turn on us and eat us alive. Everything else will be quick to blow over when the wind changes. Everything else will be quick to dry up, shrivel up when the weather changes. So one thing we can all be sure of in this gathering this morning is that we are all going to face difficulty this week. If we haven't faced difficulty in our lives, we are going to face difficulty. May our faith be proven to run deep in those times. 
And even as we worship you now, Holy Spirit, I pray you would do a work in us. And if there's, there's repentance that needs to be done, there's areas that you need to carve out of us, there's areas that you need to explore in our hearts and minds, we give you free reign to do that. And we trust you. And so we say to you, whatever you ask of us, we will do it. What we need to let go of, what we need to cling more deep, more, more strongly to, we will do it in Jesus' name. Amen.